is our last in the Fighting From Without, Fightings From Without series. We'll turn next week to Fightings From Within, from within the body of Christ itself, the visible body. But this is the world on attack. Not that there's a, uh, that it's dealing with that exclusively, but the emphasis here is on the outside world attacking uh, the body of believers. And then there's the devil sowing dissension in the ranks within, and that will be looked at um, for the next four weeks, uh, from the end of Genesis 26 to all through Genesis 27. But let us now look at Genesis 26, verses 23 through 33. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to, <clears throat> and have done to you nothing but good. And have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. And they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac set them on their way. And they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. And said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would discern the right worship of you and your kindness and grace. Not that we deserve it, not that there's any formula of prospering our way because we worship you in the way that you demand to be worshipped. For as the servants in Jesus' parable said, if we worship you correctly, we have not done anything to our gain, but have only given what was our due. So therefore we deserve nothing, and yet you love lavishing good gifts on your children. We pray, Father, that we would prioritize our spiritual ties to you and let and continue to live out of that principal connection that we have to you by covenant, your eternal bond and love for us as your children, living faithfully according to your word, repenting when we fail, and giving us the strength and wisdom to continue to live faithfully according to your word every day. We pray for strength in this fight, for the world, the flesh, and the devil wear us down every day, but you are all well too aware of this, and you give us your word like this passage 
to encourage us in the way. And we ask all this for, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Right worship makes you dangerous. On May 11th, 1685, two Scottish women, both by the name of Margaret, met their fate. Tied to stakes, 63-year-old Margaret McLaughlin and 18-year-old Margaret Wilson were placed in the tidal channel of the River Bladnock and awaited their inevitable drowning. That drowning would come if they remained headstrong and, to some, fanatically committed to their principles. The two women were Scottish Covenanters, an ecclesiastical branch of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and they staunchly and reverently remained faithful to their convictions, particularly this one, that only Jesus Christ was the true king and head of the church, no other king or head but Jesus. And this ran aground against the sentiment, both ecclesiastically, meaning of the church, and politically of the government, because the Church of England claimed that the monarch of England, be that the king or the queen, and even to this day, in the Church of England, is recognized as the head of the church. And you go, well, that's just a little doctrine. Why are they making such a big deal about it? Because they were being imposed on their consciences that they had to worship that way. It wasn't that they were trying to ruffle feathers of anybody else. Their consciences were captive to the word of God. And the word of God teaches us that there is no earthly king. There is no pope. There is no king in England or anyone that sits on an earthly throne anywhere that is the head of the church. Even our church leadership here in the Presbyterian Church of America. If you open up our book of church order, the very first line says, the only king and head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he enacts that that kingship and headship is through the right rule of his word, his apostolic word in the churches. Now, there's a lot packed in there. I'm not going to unpack it now. But I'm planting a flag, so maybe someday we can get to that. And so here's what happened. The Royal British Army came to the small town of Wigton, in Scotland, it's still small, population today is close to 900, and they began the execution process. And adding to the cruelty, they put the elder Margaret further into the deeper part of the channel so as to hopefully terrify the younger Margaret as she watched the elder Margaret in the, in the pangs of death that she would be scared enough to, to recant her position and finally swear allegiance to the king as the head of government and the head of the church. In the midst of Miss McLaughlin's struggle, some around Miss Wilson, the younger Margaret, asked her what she thought about it, and she said, what do I see wrestling there? Think you that we are the sufferers? No, it is Christ in us. For he sends none of warfare upon their own charges. What she means by that is, we didn't bring this on ourselves. Christ brought it on us because he is suffering in us and through us. And that's a lot to unpack there too, which I'm not going to get into. 
She doesn't mean that in a kind of a literal sense, but she knows that she is in Christ's will. That's what she's saying. As Margaret Wilson waited for the waters to overcome her, it was said that she sang out of her Psalter, Psalm 25, and recited Romans 8, quote, with a great deal of cheerfulness. And then prayed aloud. And in the middle of her praying, quote, the water covered her, but before she was quite dead, they pulled her up and held her out of the water till she was recovered and able to speak. And then by Major Wyndham's orders of the British Royal Army, she was asked if she would pray for the King of England. And she answered, I wish the salvation of all man and the damnation of none. One that was standing there witnessing this, deeply affected with the death of the other, meaning of the older Margaret, and also with her case, the younger Margaret, said, Dear Margaret, say, God save the king. She answered in the greatest steadiness and composure, God save him if he will, for it is his salvation I desire. She was then more sternly charged by the major to instantly thereupon, quote, to swear it. Most deliberately she refused and said, I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. Upon which she was thrust down again into the water where she finished her course with joy. That's some sturdy Presbyterian women out there now. I pray that I would have half as much courage and resolve and just grit in that moment. You see, covenant certainty is built upon a right response to the Lord's covenant promise. That was exhibited in Mary's responses there, wasn't it? Now, how does God build his trust in this covenant promise? Well, he enables proper fear of him. You see, the promise is grounded in proper response to who he is. For you see this first in the fear not command in verses 23 through 25. In the fearful response of Abimelech and his cohort in verses 26 through 29, and then the fearful feast that they had in verses 30 through 33. So, how does the Lord build trust in his covenant promise with his covenant people? He enables proper fear of him. Notice what he does in those opening verses, particularly verse 24. What we see here when God says fear not is that he is a God worth worshiping. Now, why does he say fear? Well, first of all, because he appeared in verse 24 and he said, I am the God. I'm sure Moses, when he wrote this, was reminded of his time before the burning bush when he said to God, in Exodus 3, 13 through 14, there in your sheets. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall, you say, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am the God. He always is I am. 
because he is above all time and space. Therefore, all his eternal resources are available to his children. And this response of fear is logical and natural because we are finite. I think it's always a little bit fearful to be before the true glory of God. Look at what it says in Psalm 103, 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Again, if you could see what the Hubble telescope took a picture of the earth from out from Jupiter and that distance and how tiny on the screen the earth looks like, and that's the little pinprick in the universe on which we sit and all the things that we love and care for happen. Yeah, indeed. What is man that you are mindful of him, O God, and yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, David praises God in, in Psalm 8. But not only are we fin finite, we are sinful. And nothing puts that into sharp relief like God showing up. Look at, look at when Moses begs God to show him his glory in Exodus 33. Moses said, 33, 18, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord, which is Yahweh, which is the I am that I am, that he said at the burning bush. I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no man, for man, sorry, for man shall not see me and live. If God were to come here today in all his glory, not tenderly and kindly mediated by his word and his spirit, we would all just disintegrate. It would be too much for us to handle. And so God deals with this up front. He says, fear not for, he's going to give some reasons. Why fear not? In the end of verse 24, for I am with you. And what does with you mean? Well, he says it next. And will bless you. Remember that bless is grounded in that covenant, in that bond that he has, not with everybody in the world, but with his covenant people only. And I will bless you. And what will I do for you? I will multiply offspring. Does this sound familiar? It's what he said to Abraham, right? And basically what he's saying, because he'll say it again, I will multiply offspring, and it's grounded in Abram as the former covenant head. He's saying, Abraham's covenant headship is passing to you, Isaac. Remember, he says in verse 24 there, I will multiply your offspring for my servant's, servant Abraham's sake. You see, I am with you. That's the blessing. You got me. Your father went out because he had me. We see it most perfectly exemplified in many instances in Jesus' life, but particularly here when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember he went up on a mount. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and Peter all nervous, said, hey, uh, we can, this is really good. We don't want anything to stop, so can we make some, 
some dwellings for Moses and Elijah and you, and, and God breaks in, right? And it's right here at this point, Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking, meaning Peter was still speaking, which he did a lot, and he had foot and mouth disease, and I can relate to that. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, it doesn't mean that Moses' word and Elijah's word were trash, but they were sinners. And all they were doing was pointing to this one here. Listen to him. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, what happened? They fell on their faces and what? They were terrified. But look, fear not. But Jesus came and touched them and saying, rise, because they fell down, which they should have. But he's telling them to rise and have no fear. Have no fear. Addressing both issues. What's he saying? <laughs> this is great news, folks. The hope of all hopes is here. Because yes, you're right. You should fear me. I'm coming to you mediated in my flesh. The word made flesh. To give you the terms of peace. That you can relate to God and be connected with him. United to him by faith. And you won't be harmed anymore. So lay down your arms. Not only that, but God strengthens the deal, not just sweetens it. He really strengthens it because in verse 23 and 25, we see that we come to a well, but it's a well of oaths. In other words, God's not just saying things. He's putting it under oath. He's putting himself under oath. Verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba, and then Isaac does what Abraham did when the Lord appeared to him. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now Beersheba, uh, the word means, it could mean oath. It could mean well of oath or it could mean well of seven because the two words sound similar. It could mean both, just blended into one. Why is there seven? Well, look at Genesis 21 there. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. The lamb is the witness. The seven, the perfect offering. So it's grounded in Abraham, but more than that, it's grounded in what God did for Abraham. Like what he does for us in Christ. So when you take all this in combination... He is a God to be feared, but then he tells us to fear not. Well, what must you do? You can't do anything else but worship. Now, this ain't anywhere close, but I remember when I visited St. Petersburg, Russia, and I got to visit the Hermitage. And by the way, you could never exhaust that place. It is so overwhelming. All, it has, uh, I think, two million, if I'm not mistaken, original artwork. So there was an original Monet. I may have told you about this before. Monet is my favorite of the Impressionists. I remember learning some stuff. I'm not trying to sound too educated because I'm not a connoisseur. But I saw a Monet there, and it was like there was no glass around it. The guy standing the guard, I mean, literally, it was bare, out in the open. I was standing as close as, I, as this mic, and I, was, I just wanted to take it in and see his name down in the corner there and know that that came from his hand. 
It stopped me dead in my tracks to see a Claude Monet painting that was actually from his hand, not a copy. Imagine the God of this universe coming to you. Yes, fear, but fear not. God protects his covenant people by his commands. That's the takeaway. His commands are not burdensome. And nothing shows grace more and therefore his love for us more than his commands. There are many reasons for this, but for the sake of this passage, especially the command, fear not. Because why? Because I could crush you, but I haven't. And therefore there's an open door to mercy. God protects his people by his covenant commands. This gives you great assurance that if this God, who could crush you, who could send you to hell forever, he gives you mercy instead. That's, that's rock solid. That's ironclad. And then he makes a promise and, and takes an oath. you got to know that's certain. You're in. I will make good on it is what God is saying. So God protects his covenant people by his commands in order to increase their covenant certainty by working in them a right response to his covenant promise. And how does he build that trust in his covenant promise? He enables proper fear of him. This fear is grounded not only in his fear not command, but in the fear-filled response of these two, uh, of these, this cohort of people, the king Abimelech and Ahuzath, his advisor, verse 26, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, what we see here is the king is gathering his might around him. He's bringing his army guys, right? His generals. And Isaac says to them, in verses uh, 27 through the beginning of verse 28, he says, why have you come to me? Why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me. Why does he say that? Because they sent him away. And he did it. He's not like getting up in their face, but they're still coming back to him. And he's thinking they're coming to attack him, but what do they say? Verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. I think this is a cowering to Isaac and his speech in verse 27. See, even at a distance, when Isaac was at a distance, they, what do they see? They plainly see the evidence of the Lord's hand in Isaac's life. Romans 1, 18 through 19, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their ungodliness, what do they do? Listen, People around the world hate God. We were born with this hatred of God. We still have to fight it in the flesh because we actively push him out of the way. We actively push plain truth out of the way. What do they do? Who by what? Their unrighteousness, that's the main motivation. They just want to be unrighteous. They want to dismantle everything. That God has set up. And what do they do? They suppress the truth. That means they're actively pushing it under. Constantly when it pops up, they've got to push it down. That's why they want Isaac away. Get away. Get away. Because they fear the truth. For what can be known about God, verse 19 of Romans 1, is what? Plain to them because God has shown it. Shown it to them. They see it. 
But what else do they notice? They notice Emmanuel, don't they? We plainly see that the Lord is with you. With you. That's a foreshadowing right there that God is giving all his people. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill as the Lord, what, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet as the angel speaks to Joseph here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so they have this fear. They come with all his might, and they say, look, we want to make a pact. We want to make a covenant with you that you won't do any harm to us. And so the fear is wisely dealt with, at least on an earthly level, wisely by Phicol, I mean by Abimelech, Phicol, and Ahuzath. All right? Look at what they do. Verse, end of verse 28. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. See, they're very fearful. <laughs> they think Isaac's going to harm them. And if they really knew Isaac, he doesn't seem like the type of guy that's going to get up in their face. But they're still fearful. Why? Because of the Lord. They say at the end, you are now the blessed of the Lord. It took a pagan to recognize, hey, you are the blessed of the Lord. God had already told them that. Right? right? Sort of wait until your father gets home, right? Remember when I was running through the house one time, my mom was trying to get me to stop. I was seven years old. I ran down the hall and my arm knocked a plaque of my father that he had gotten from being a Cub Scout leader. And it fell on the floor and the little thing fell off of it. And, of course, I bawled. And, uh, man, I was under the fear of my dad at seven years old. You can imagine, right? And what did they say to him? They said, please don't hurt us. Even from far away we can see you could really hurt us. Isaac didn't even know the power he had. God protects his covenant people by causing his and their enemies to sense his dreadfulness. Because trust me, unbelieving folks are dreadful. They are in dread of the Lord. So God builds his covenant certainty by building a right response to his covenant promise. How does God build trust in that covenant promise? He enables proper fear of him. The promise is grounded in his fear, not command. The fear-filled response, and now the fearful feasting. Why do they have a feast after this? They made a pact. They made a covenant. God protects his covenant people by preparing a table before them in the presence of, their, of him and their enemies. That sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? Right? There's a fearful trust, first of all. So he made them a feast, verse 30, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. So they're making this really serious. And Isaac sent them on their way. They didn't send him away this time. Isaac's sending them away. Because Isaac does know his power. And they departed from him in peace. See, the whole point of this is if you can survive a feast with me, then you can probably trust me that I'm good for my word. That's the ancient mindset. You, and you can be more assured because we're going to do this with oaths. That means there's a blood sacrifice which goes through that whole thing, whatever happened to these animals happened to me if I don't fulfill my side of this covenant. It's a human-to-human -human covenant. And so God provides because he takes all kinds. Isaac, this passive man, not totally passive, he's a hard worker, right? 
But if they, it gets a little encroachment, he just keeps the peace by moving on to the next well, right? But then he has a reflection, I think, on this fear not. When God comes to him and says, fear not, he reflects on that at the end because God provides it for him. Look at verse 32 and 33. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well. Remember all the conflict over the wells? The Philistines kept filling it up. All these people from Gerar under King Abimelech, they kept filling them up. He kept moving on. They dug a well and they said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. He takes all kinds and encouragement of diversity of all kinds of people. And look at Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that what's illustrated right here? You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because God makes good on his covenant promise. You know, when you are able to feast and have a banquet in the presence of your enemies, right there in the midst of being enemies with them, you're in a pretty relaxed state, aren't you? I know I can take you. But I'm not. I'll make the covenant with you because I want to do this the Lord's way. Well, Isaac's very relaxed. Fear not. Fear not. God protects his covenant people by preparing a table before them in the presence of his and their enemies. So in conclusion, you don't have to worry about being a dangerous worshiper of God because God's good. How is that table effective in the presence of your enemies? Because we're all God's enemies, that's why. We're all born God's enemies. But God, in his grace, takes us from being these kind of people. Look at James 4, 4. Every time we're sinning, we're going against God. doesn't mean that we're ultimate enemies of him. Christians do sin. But James warns us. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means mutual hostility. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't have time to go into all those definitions of what is a friend of the world. But you can probably guess at least some of that. Anything that goes against God's law, Ten Commandments. And so for the two Mar Margarets, for you, for me, for Paul, for Peter, even for Jesus himself, what is it that gives us that confidence then? How can we be so cocky and assured? Well, we're not cocky. People, the world might think we are, but we're not. Look at Psalm 69. This is about Jesus. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Think of the two Margarets thinking about Jesus. I'm sure this psalm might have come to their mind. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Jesus went through this very thing on the cross, being submerged in the ocean of our sins. Why did he do it? Why did God do this? Isaiah 53, 10, it's not on your sheets. He says that basically it was God's will to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Because we were guilty. It was for us. Because of this great enmity, Genesis 3.15, right? God's claiming, reclaiming a people for himself. And so he died. Jesus died. And he offered to God a pleasing sacrifice in our place. 
so that we wouldn't have to do it. And what good is he to us now that he's died? Well, he resurrected, but what good is that to us? He walked around on earth, okay. Well, he ascended, what good is that to us? Well, he's coming back again as a fully conquering king to conquer all his and our enemies, as the catechism says about him being a king. So what good is he to us? Well, until then, Hebrews 7.25, it's there in your sheets, tells us, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, what? Draw near to God through him. That's the only way to draw near to God, by the way, without getting your head chopped off. Because we're sinners and he's holy. Since why? Since he always lives. What, what is Jesus about doing right now? Since he always lives to make intercession for you. For you and you and you and you and you and you. And all his people all around the world. So yes, you do have enemies. But once you were God's enemy and you're not anymore. You will be attacked from without. But he gives you a feast in the midst of battle. Fear not. He is a God worth worshiping. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would go out as we sing together worshiping you from our hearts. Help us to remember all that you are for us and all that you've done for us, making us your adopted covenant children through the person and work of our blessed and most glorious covenant head, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.